We find ourselves in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 8 this morning, and so I know that you're going to find it a great help to have your own copy of Scripture open and reading along there with me. 1 Corinthians 2, we're going to look at verses 1 through 8, and before we do, let's pray and ask God's blessing on His Word. Let's pray together. Father, as the eyes of a servant look to his master and as the eyes of a mistress to her maid are made to her mistress, so our eyes look to you, the God who made heaven and earth, the God who is full of wisdom, who is yourself wisdom and understanding. And in your Son, Christ Jesus, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so, Father, we come and we pray that you would give us that wisdom and that knowledge and that saving understanding of you that our hearts would be engaged in the knowledge of the Lord, that our minds would not just be filled, but that our, our hearts would be moved and broken and that you would produce in us all of the fruits of your saving grace in our lives. Father, we pray that we would know Jesus Christ more fully, that we would see him more clearly, that we would love him more passionately, that you would cause us to be drawn to the Savior this morning. Father, these are things that only you can do and that only the Holy Spirit can produce in us. And so we come as children asking you for that best gift that you have for your children, even the Holy Spirit. And so, Father, we pray that you would be present with us, that you would bless the preaching and the hearing of your word, that you would cause us to be a people that are attentive, to hold on to, to treasure, to hide in our hearts your word that we might not sin against you. Father, be pleased to bless your congregation this morning. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes these words, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of human wisdom or of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I wonder if I asked you the question, who was the most notable orator or public speaker in American history, if you would know the answer to that. Not sure there's one definite answer to that, but if I were to answer, ask that question, I wonder who you would think of. I think that most historians lay that credit at the feet of Patrick Henry. Patrick Henry was that great American revolutionary uh, war spokesman who said, give me liberty or give me death. But what you may not know about Patrick Henry is that Patrick Henry functioned as a hired lawyer in a lot of very difficult criminal trials because of his eloquence and his rhetorical ability. Um, The first professor of theology at Princeton Seminary, Archibald Alexander, writes in his biography about, as a boy, some 50 years before he is writing these words, as a boy, he remembers hearing about 
Patrick Henry and how amazing he was, how he could convince anyone of his arguments, how he could move his hearers to tears. And Alexander stretches out and lays out in his memoirs how he went to hear Patrick Henry. There was a case, there was a legal case in which three men had gone to two other men over uh, a case, over some stolen goods. And one of the men, one of the brothers of the first party that were on trial that Henry was defending, had shot one of the men he had confronted in broad daylight. The evidence weighed against him. It was very clear against him. There was no way this guy was getting off. And then Alexander tells the story about how he went to this case and sat and he listened to uh, the defense lawyer and he listened to the arguments and it was very compelling. And how could anyone, how could anyone let this man walk? And then Patrick Henry came in and he goes through in great detail his facial expressions, his emotions, his speech, his composure. He talks about the greatness of Patrick Henry. It's a really fascinating thing to read. And Patrick Henry, in the end, was successful in vindicating and clearing a man that was very clearly guilty. Well, I think that's helpful because a lot of times, a lot of times, we think that success and power in the church will come because of greatness in people and their gifts. This is what Paul's been dealing with. This is why in the church of Corinth, people have been saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. They were looking at these men and they were saying the effectiveness, the effectiveness of these men and the message they proclaim is in their giftedness, is in their ability, is in their communication, is in their speech, is in their logic, is in their rhetoric. Now, I don't know that we have as great a problem today I don't know that the problem is as great as it's been in the history of the church. I want to read to you something that Ray Ortland Jr. writes. He says, We do have our own analogies to the lofty words or wisdom that Paul rejected. Making a big impression is the very stuff of modern advertising. For example, to which we readily submit ourselves, triggering envy, appealing to vanity, playing to the felt needs of the target group commercial advertising is the cultural air we breathe. Within the church... The sophists of today are those who wish to project an image of being with it, on the cutting edge, powerful, if not through the well-turned phrase, then at least through the well-told anecdote. Their aim is to come across as amusing, touching, current, as if that empowered their ministry. But what bothered Paul was that a self-conscious, human-centered approach to preaching grates against the very message to be preached. How can the testimony of God be meaning, meaningfully proclaimed when the proclamation depends for its effectiveness upon the cleverness of men. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that is one of the most timely things that any church in America and our little church in Richmond Hill, Georgia, could hear because the temptations are great. The temptations to try to produce effectiveness through methodologies and programs and plans and business procedures and All kinds of things are great. The temptations are great. And so we come this morning to a passage like 1 Corinthians 2 where Paul puts himself out there. And Paul belittles himself. Paul has been saying that the gospel is a foolish thing. That Christ crucified is a foolish thing to the world. And then he says that that is preached to a foolish people. That not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble. And now he'll say that that gospel is preached by foolish men through a foolish method. Foolish men like Paul, the apostle, the great persecutor of the church, who once hated Christ crucified, now proclaiming Christ crucified in a foolish means, monologue. Very foolish thing. I don't know that you'll ever read a church growth magazine 
that has a whole article on how you can grow your church through powerful gospel-centered preaching. I don't know that you would find that. I think you'd find that in some, some websites. You'd find it on some, some better church magazines, but I don't think you're going to find it in modern church growth magazines that the way to grow your church is through powerful gospel-centered preaching that relies on the Spirit of God to be at work. This morning we're going to see three things. First, we're going to see the simplicity of the gospel proclamation. Second, we're going to see the centrality of the gospel proclamation. Then we're going to see the efficacy of the Spirit in the gospel proclamation. And finally, the wisdom of the gospel proclamation. The simplicity the centrality, the efficacy, and the wisdom. We'll notice that Paul puts himself out there in verse 1. And in case there's any confusion that Paul is putting himself over anybody else, Paul says, and I, when I came to you, I did not come. I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Paul didn't come in with pretense. Paul, let me remind you, Paul was more educated than everybody in this room. Paul had an unbelievable education. Paul was trained at the feet of one of the greatest rabbinical rabbis in all of Second Temple Judaism. And Paul said, I did not come to you with excellency of speech or of wisdom and words in, in proclaiming to you the message of the cross. Now, Paul knew literature. We know that from Acts 17. He knew the poets. He knew secular poetry so well that he could pull a line out of one of the famous poets and apply it in an evangelistic message very skillfully. But Paul says, I didn't come to you trying in some way to persuade you through excellent speech or wisdom of words. That Paul wasn't relying on his rhetoric or his English or his turn phrases or his analogies or illustrations. He wasn't trying to move people through heartwarming stories. Paul said, I did not come proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, but I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. There's something simple. There's something simple about the preaching of the gospel. I heard a man this week preach the gospel, and he preached very profound things and very simple, very clear even very non-passionate ways. And God worked that very powerfully on my soul. Because the power is not in rhetoric. It's not in eloquence. It's not in homiletical skill. It's in the simple, clear preaching of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The power is in the gospel. The power comes through foolish men by foolish means. I, I thought about how I could capture everything that First Corinthians one and two are really saying, and this is what I came up with, ministers are weak men with a foolish message to proclaim by means of a foolish method for despised people, but that's when God manifests his power. Think about that. Everything in First Corinthians 1 and 2 is foolishness, and that's the platform where God's going to work his power. And Paul says, I didn't come in relying on any kind of eloquence, any kind of skill. I preached very clearly, very persuasively, very truthfully, very honestly, very biblically, the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's what our churches need confidence in more than anything. That's what the people in the pews need confidence in more than anything. That's what ministers need confidence in. Because you know what? At the end of the day, at the end of the day, the reality is that that is not natural to trust in that. It's not natural to say that a man, a foolish, weak man, notice what Paul will actually say in verse 3. I was with you in weakness. I was with you in fear. I was with you in much trembling. Paul, Paul was a weak, a weak, frightened 
minister coming to people and proclaiming a message to them. You know, I am sure, I am sure that if Paul applied for many of the PCA churches in the United States, he would get passed over by search committees. I am absolutely positive of that. The great Apostle Paul. I'm just bringing it home to the PCA. Yeah, I think we have a pretty good denomination. I am positive that if they saw on his CV, tell us about yourself. I'm weak. I'm often frightened when I preach. I don't trust in rhetoric or logic. And all I want to do is preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. He would get passed over. I've told you the story, haven't I, about I was in a very large PCA church for a number of years and had a dear elderly uh, woman in the congregation who's a very dear friend. And a lot had happened in the church. The church had basically fallen apart under a man who was not carrying out a biblical ministry. And I said to my friend, how did, how did this church end up calling this man when his ministry is so evidently not biblical? And she said, you know, 10 years ago, the search committee was looking at candidates. And one of the candidates is really one of the most amazing theologians in the world. I know him. He's one of the greatest theologians in the world. And he was a candidate. And she said he came in and he preached. And I said, this is the man this church needs. He was theological. He was biblical. He was Christ-centered. He preached the gospel. She said, this is the man this church needs. And yet this man, like a lot of brilliant people, was disheveled. His tie was crooked. His hair is a very disheveled man. And he doesn't have a very eloquent accent. He has a deep, deep farm southern accent. And the other man's very well-dressed, carried himself very maturely, very winsomely. It was one of his favorite words. And my friend said, I said to that search committee, we need this man. And down the line, they said, he's not sophisticated enough. He is not sophisticated enough. Listen, the Apostle Paul is telling us it's not about sophisticated men. It's not about eloquent men. It's about the simple, clear proclamation of the gospel that God uses to produce his power in the lives and the hearts of people. Because that's where power is found. You know, Patrick Henry is long deceased. You probably wouldn't find much written about him in the annals of history. But what Paul says here about the proclamation of the gospel is everlasting. Every generation of every Christian should hear this. God has recorded this in the Bible. And notice that it's not just the simplicity of the gospel proclamation, but it is the centrality of the gospel message. Notice what Paul says in verse 2. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, this is a verse that has been loved and treasured by many people in the church, and it is a verse that has caused even John Calvin to be a little bit confounded. Because when you read Paul, Paul cared about lots of things. Paul cared about the doctrine of election. Paul cared about how church government was set up. Paul cared about teaching on the doctrine of depravity. Paul cared about how marriages functioned, didn't he? Paul cared about marriage and divorce and all of those things that we find in his letters. And so some men have said, well, Paul is just using hyperbole. He's going over the top. The central thing was the gospel. That wasn't the only thing. I don't think that's right. I think that Paul means what he says when he says, I determined not to know anything among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul is saying, 
Everything that I will teach you is in relationship to the person and the saving work of Jesus. Everything that I teach you, that means everything that I read in this Bible, in some way moves in like spokes on a wheel into the center, which is Jesus Christ and him crucified. I said to some friends the other night, because oftentimes Charles Spurgeon is criticized in more Reformed churches for not preaching the text as carefully. Spurgeon was the prince of preachers. And I said, if I can preach Jesus Christ and him crucified in every sermon, like Charles Spurgeon did, that would be an enormous victory in my feeble ministry. If I could be like Charles Spurgeon in the most minute way, in the commitment to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified, that would be an enormous victory. There are many men who enter the ministry with this determination, and at the end of their ministries, you wonder what happened to it. You wonder what happened to it. Paul says, I determined not to know anything among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Notice that it's a termination. It's a determination. Paul, in a sense, had to be purposeful. It's so easy to get pulled into other distinctive directions and let those things override the central thing where God has invested his power. Listen, why is the preaching of Jesus Christ and him crucified so important? Because it meets your deepest needs. Because deep down, in your hearts, deep down, the sin that goes deep down in your hearts can only be dealt with by the message of Christ crucified. That God, that God, under whose wrath you are by nature and I am by nature, it's it's everywhere in Scripture, the God under whose wrath you are by nature would become man, would humble himself, would go to the the tiniest, most humble, embryonic form would humble himself to live in a fallen world. Imagine that. Imagine when Jesus said, how long will I bear with you? What this world must have done to the soul of the Son of God. That God would come into this world and become man and he would take the wrath. He would take the wrath that you deserve for your sin, his wrath, And he would bear that punishment for you so that your sin deep down that goes so deep in your souls could be dealt with. That's why Paul says, I determine not to know anything among you except the person and the work of Christ. I think that's the great need for this day. You know, our church may not grow like lots of the megachurches are growing. I want our church to grow. I would be thrilled if our church would grow. But... You must grow spiritually as the gospel is preached. As Jesus Christ is being preached, you must grow. And that's where growth comes from. And that's where your conscience that's often weighed down with guilt is relieved and healed and restored is in the preaching of Jesus Christ and crucified. Paul's not talking about evangelistic preaching. He's talking about evangelical preaching. He's not talking about preaching to unbelievers. He's talking about preaching to the church. That Jesus Christ and him crucified, the Savior hanging on the tree under the wrath of God for me, that that Savior is everything that I need in his saving work. That that full satisfaction from the wrath of God, the atonement of all my sins, the justification I have through his blood, is everything that I need for every second of my life until I am in his presence. And when you have a guilty conscience because of the things you've done, 
and your conscience condemns you and you fear judgment day and you're fearful, you hear, as Jesus said to the disciples when they were in the sea and they were afraid, he said, do not be afraid. You ever thought about that? How can, how can Jesus say to the disciples, do not be afraid? That is a foretaste of the spiritual care that he would provide through his death and resurrection. That physical deliverance in that storm on the sea was a foretaste, a picture, a living picture of the spiritual care so that when you look at the crucified Savior, he is saying to you, do not be afraid. Perfect love casts out fear. There is no fear in judgment. The only hope that we have on Judgment Day, the only hope we have on Judgment Day is that our Savior actually did what we needed Him to do at Calvary. That as the second Adam, He did everything that the first Adam failed to do and He undid everything the first Adam did at the cross. That at the cross, at that second tree, remember, Adam went to that first tree and he took and he ate. And he disobeyed, and God the Father said to his son, there is one tree you must go to and you must eat from. And Jesus hung on that tree as the second Adam, providing everything that we need so that now we have to say, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. I heard one of my favorite theologians say about that, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling, is not a matter of poetry, it's a matter of reality. It's not a matter of poetry. It's a matter of reality. And so Paul said, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You, in this congregation, are to hold me to that standard. You are to expect that of any minister that you sit under. Wherever God takes you, if you lose your job and you have to move far away from here, you are to hold ministers of the gospel to that standard of knowing nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then notice what Paul says. In the third place, he talks about now the efficacy of the Spirit in the Gospel Proclamation. Notice what he says in verse 4 and following. He says, My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Now, I think there's a sort of double entendre here. I think Paul is on the one hand saying that the Spirit was at work in him, and because God's Spirit was at work in him, he was a witness to the power of the gospel personally. This was the great persecutor of the church. If it can work there, if the gospel can work in a man like Saul of Tarsus, it can work in you. If, it, if the gospel can work there in that man, it can work in me. Maybe there's a word there for you that you need to hear. The gospel can work in Saul of Tarsus if the demonstration of the Spirit's power in him through the gospel could work. It can work in you. It's always good for us to say, maybe it can work for me. Is it working for you? Are you able to say with the Apostle Paul that your life witnesses a demonstration of the Spirit and power through the belief in the Gospel? That's the great question. And Paul says, I didn't come with speech. I didn't come with wisdom. I came with my life as a transformed man. And I also think Paul is saying that in the preaching of the gospel, it is the Spirit's work to take that word and to work it down deep in you and to make it effectual in you and to bring forth fruit in you and to do what only the Spirit can do. There is something so wonderful. When I sit in a worship service, and I don't get to do this often, there's something so wonderful. When I sit in a worship service and something happens as I'm listening, and it's not the minister. He can't reach into my soul and do something. God is there. The Spirit is at work. 
And there's something wonderful when He comes and He starts to soften the heart and the Gospel starts to melt an indifferent heart and conviction starts to come over sin and the Spirit starts to move in your humility under the knowledge of Christ crucified and you start to then be assured that you're in Him, that you belong to Him, that you love Him. It starts to produce in you the fruits of assurance and comfort that you are your Savior's and your Savior is yours. There's something so wonderful about that. It's something the world can't understand. Listen, when Paul says all that he says about everything being foolishness to the world, I think at that moment, when you are sitting under the preaching of Christ crucified and the Spirit begins to do that, and nobody around you can see that happening in your soul, that is the moment of greatest mystery and perplexity to people in the world because they'll never experience it. The unbeliever will never experience it. If you're an unbeliever here, you will not experience that until God moves in your heart to bring you to repentance and do that through the preaching of Christ crucified. Notice that Paul goes on from the Spirit. He'll pick up with that in the following verses, but he'll now go on in verses 6 through following and he'll explain to us really the, the, the fruit. What is the, the fruit of the Gospel proclamation? He'll say two things. First, at the end of verse 5, he'll say that all of this is so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. God does all of this so that your faith would be in God and in His Son and in His wisdom and not in some minister. That your hope and your trust and your joy and your rejoicing would be in Jesus Christ and not in some great preacher or teacher. Because you know what? God can take them away one by one as quickly as He gave them, but God remains constant and the Gospel remains constant and the Spirit's work is constant so that your faith is in God. Now, What ought that to do for you, who have faith in Jesus, with regard to what Paul is saying about preaching? Let me read to you a quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German theologian who, of the mid-20th century. Bonhoeffer writes these words, The congregation which is being awakened by the proclamation of the word of God will demonstrate the genuineness of its faith, by honoring the office of preaching in its unique glory and by serving it with all its power. The world sees preaching and ministers and preachers as base, foolish, stupid, worthless things. I have heard people say, we don't need no preachers. Base, foolish, weak, stupid. Bonhoeffer says, if you have had your heart changed by the gospel, Your faith will manifest itself in the high view of the office of preaching and you will pray for it and you will pray that God blesses it and you will pray that the Holy Spirit will empower ministers of the gospel so that God's power will be known throughout the world because that is what God wants. And the genuineness of our faith shows forth that we love that and know that and believe that and hope in that because that's how God works. Isn't that beautiful? that the great God who made the heavens and the earth, the great God who called everything into existence out of nothing, the God who lacks nothing and has all power and all riches and all wealth and all wisdom and all knowledge and everything, who lacks nothing, who owns the cattle on a billion hills, that that God chooses to exert his power through what the world deems as most foolish and to build your faith up in him through preaching, 
through the preaching of the word. He chooses to build his people up through a foolish man proclaiming a foolish message by a foolish method so that your faith will be in him and that his king will advance through you. Now listen, Paul finally says in verse 6 through 8, there is wisdom. In case somebody might read this and say, okay, Paul, this is not very appealing to us. You said that all around us in Corinth, there's all these philosophers. We know there's all these eloquent men. There's all these Patrick Henrys all around us. And that's what the world loves. And you're telling us we don't love that and that we're base and we're weak. What, what attraction is there for us? If, if there's no wisdom in this, why would we believe it? Paul says, no, there is wisdom. There is wisdom in it. Notice what he says in verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do speak wisdom. Those that know Jesus, those that understand these things. Paul says, oh, there's, there's wisdom here. There's more wisdom than you could ever imagine. There's more power than you can imagine. Harry Reader, pastor at Briarwood PCA, uh, tells the story about how when he was a boy, his very poor father came to him to buy him his first car. And he, his dad said, son, I, I, brought, I bought you a car, a 1957 Ford. And Harry Reader said, wow, you know, that was very unexpected. And Dad said, I can't wait to show it to you. And so he took him out back, and Reader talks about how excited and anxious he is, and he, he sees it, and his heart sinks, and he says, Dad, I can't drive that. Dad said, son, it's a, it's a police chaser. It's one of the cars that police use to chase other cars. And, and Reader didn't know that. And Reader said, Dad, I can't drive that. It's, it's pink. It's a pink 57 Ford. Everybody's going to make fun of me. Everybody's going to... You don't understand. This is going to ruin my life. His dad took him out, and he opened the hood, and he showed him the engine. It was an engine that could blow away any Corvette, any, any car out there that raced. And Harry Reader goes on to say that he said, Dad, I love this car. And he talks about how many Corvettes he blew up that tailpipe, how many races he won with that car, because that car had under the hood great power. Even though from human standards and perspectives it was worthless, and meaningless and stupid, inside that car, it had more power than anyone could imagine. That's the way the gospel works. The world sees it. They see all the things I've talked about. They see Christ crucified. They see foolish ministers. They see a foolish minister doing a foolish thing to foolish people, and they say, that's stupid and foolish. And many Christians buy into that lie and say, I don't want to associate with that. And God lifts the hood of the gospel, and he says, look at the power. Look at the power. Look at the wisdom. Paul says we speak wisdom, not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing, but a secret and a hidden wisdom. It's under the hood. It's a hidden wisdom that God decreed before the ages for our glory that none of the rulers of this age knew, for if they had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. One more illustration. When I lived in Philadelphia, I've told some of you this. Across the street from me, there was a house. And the neighborhood had been gentrified in the city. And there was a house that had looked very much like a squatter's house where crack addicts, heroin addicts would live, right across the street. And I would always walk by and wonder if there were squatters up in there, if it was a dangerous place if I had to worry about it for my family. And one day I saw a uh, uh, sort of hunched over, slow-moving, elderly black man come out of that house. And I kind of looked in his door and it, it looked really nice inside. Outside, it was boarded up, it was painted brown, bars, dilapidated, inside, hidden, 
behind that door was a gorgeous studio with his house. It was hidden. It was purposeful. He had hidden the inside of that house and everything nice in there for himself and for his wife. God has hidden for you in Jesus Christ a wisdom that the world can't know. It was hidden from the ages. God put it in there. And then the veneer looks oftentimes less than attractive inside. There is wisdom, God says, for you in Jesus Christ to know the divine mysteries of God. And notice, he says that none of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. I almost find this irony here. The thing that Paul said he wanted to preach the most and that was most useful to us was Jesus Christ and him crucified, that it's through that that you get all the hidden wisdom of God. But then Paul steps back and says, if the world had known it, they wouldn't have crucified him. And the conclusion is, Paul is glad that the rulers of this age didn't know so that the Son of God would be crucified that the door would be open, the hood would be lifted, you would see what God has for you, the power and the wisdom that you have over sin, over Satan, over death itself, to be reconciled to God, to have the wrath of God satisfied in the death of Jesus. Everything you need inside, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I want to challenge you with one thing as we close. I want to challenge you to pray that God would make you to know more of the power and the wisdom that you have in Christ crucified. And with that, that you would pray that God would make you love the preaching of the word and the preaching of the gospel. And with that, that you would pray that God would bless the preaching of the word in this church. You know, as I considered this whole message, thought about everything that I was looking at, I was again brought back to saying, you know, any other things we may do to try to reach people and grow this church and we need to reach out and we need to be outward focused, there's one thing we need to do. We need to have powerful, spirit-wrought, Christ-centered, cross-centered preaching, both for you, both for you and me, and for the people we're trying to reach. That's what God has given us. Beloved, that is what God has given us. Let's pray, as Bonhoeffer said. Let me close with this. The congregation that is being awakened by the proclamation of the word of God will demonstrate the genuineness of its faith by honoring the office of preaching in its unique glory and by serving it with all its power. That's my challenge to you. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you that you have spoken so clearly, that you have made so clearly known to us your will, that you have made known to us Jesus Christ and him crucified, that you have made known to us uh, the kind of people that we are, the kind of Savior that Christ is, that you have made known to us the sort of ministers that you use and the method that you use and the kinds of preaching that you are pleased to bless and to invest with power and wisdom. 
Father, we pray that we would not trust in any human strength, but we would trust in you, the living God, as a congregation. We lift up our voices that you would pour out such a blessing on the preaching of the word that we would see the moving, the mighty, powerful moving of your spirit. Lord, we pray that you would do this for your own namesake, that you would be glorified, that you would cause your kingdom to grow, that you would get the honor, that Christ would be exalted. Father, we pray that our faith would be firmly resting in you. We pray that you would build up our congregation this morning in the knowledge of these things, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.